Brad and I, you know, often, um, we sort of joke. We sort of joke about the fact that when things really come after us, it must really be a powerful word that God wants to share. And I have to say, this is not something I would have ever thought I would preach on, and yet I am very excited to preach this because it is a truth that just resonates in my spirit, um, and I believe it is really a very powerful word. So having said that, how many of you know the story of the sword and the stone? Anybody ever seen the Disney movie, read the book, something like that, right? All right. It's about a young orphan boy named Arthur, and he's able to pull a sword out of the stone when no one else could do it. It's a fairy tale or a fable. It's a fictional story. Let me make that very clear. It is a fictional story. The story goes that the king of England died and he had no heir, leaving the throne unprotected. A sword magically appears embedded in a stone with an inscription proclaiming that whoever can remove the the sword from the stone is the rightful king and heir of England, the most powerful country in the world. Well, nobody could take out the stone with this sword, so it's just forgotten. And England is left with no king and no ruler and no one to protect the throne. So as you can imagine, there's an awful lot of fighting going on over who gets control. Ultimately what happens is that this little orphan, Arthur, forgets to bring the sword for his foster brother. His foster brother is going to be in a sword fight. And if you're in a sword fight, the last thing you want to do is show up without a sword. So Arthur, knowing he's going to be in a little bit of trouble, that he doesn't have the sword, runs back home, tries to find the sword. The house is all locked up, can't get in it, stumbles upon this sword stuck in a rock, pulls it out, takes off, brings it back, and everybody says to him, where'd you get that sword? We know that sword. Nobody's supposed to be able to lift that sword. What is going on? And he says, well, I just found it, and I pulled it up. And of course they say, you must be the rightful king. That's not what they said. Actually, what they said was, you wouldn't have been able to pull that out. Who pulled it out for you? He's thinking, I don't know, I did. So they all go back to the stone, and they put the sword back in, and everybody tries to pull it out, and nobody can pull it out. And so Arthur walks up, and he pulls out the sword. So guess who gets to be the next king of England? A poor little orphan boy who had nothing in this world and had no reason to be anything special, and yet he now is the king of the most powerful country on earth. So what is this fictional story full of magic, you know, Merlin and our wizard and all that kind of stuff, and an orphan, what does that have to do with Jesus Christ and the scriptures? Can we take a fictional story full of crazy ideas and see God moving in the midst of it? Well, as I said earlier, I do believe that God uses anything and everything around us to proclaim who he is. 
And so in this particular sermon, I'd like you to think of that sword as the Word of God. And every one of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ as that young Arthur. Anyone who bows their knee and claims Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior has the right and the ability to remove the sword from the stone. But if you have not chosen Christ as your Savior, if you have not repented of sin and begun to follow Him, this is foolishness. You cannot understand the words in this book without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to understand the mysteries of Jesus Christ and all that God has brought forth for us. It takes that in order to understand and have the power of the sword in our hand. But we have to take the sword out of the stone. If we don't, it is simply forgotten truth. And forgotten truth, we can forget what Jesus has taught us. And when that happens, we are susceptible to false teachings. So let's take a look. Brad had started a series. He has started a series in the book of Revelation. And we are going to take a look today at the next church, the letter to the church of Pergamum. That is the next letter in the book of Revelation. And in my Bible, the section right above this church is called the Letter to the Compromising Church. I don't know about you, but I don't see anything in that that could be good. It's important to know where and how the church can begin to compromise. What did they compromise? Revelation 2.12 says, And the angel of the church in Pegamos wrote, these things he says, who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Who is it that has the sharp, two-edged sword? It is Jesus Christ. 16, Revelation 1.16 says, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's a picture of Jesus Christ in Revelation. From his mouth came a two-edged sword. What comes from our mouth? Words. Words. This is as sharp as a two-edged sword and should be coming forth from our mouth. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus Christ identifies Himself as the Word. He is with God, He is God, and He is the Word. The Word is a two-edged sword. Can you imagine how sharp a two-edged sword would be? 
I don't want to be messing around with somebody with a two-edged sword. Ephesians 4, 7, the story of the, or the description of the armor that we are to take on. Ephesians 4, 7 says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We need the helmet of salvation. Why? Because without it, we don't understand the Holy Scriptures. But we must take up the sword which is the Word of God. So what does Jesus say to this church at Pergamum? Let's go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. It says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Two times he makes a point. They live in Satan's throne and they live where Satan dwells. Pergamum was actually known as sort of the hub of false, well, they didn't think they were false, but of false religions. There were multitudes of different religions there that honored everything and anything you can imagine. And here was this Christian church in the midst of Pergamum trying to hold fast to the teachings that they had been given. And Jesus said to, says to them, you hold fast to my name. You did not deny faith in me, even in the days in which Antipas was martyred. Now, I know that we have talked, and, and it's been something that you've heard from the pulpit here often, about the persecuted church and and missionaries that we support and know who are being persecuted. But the reality is, they're on the other side of the world. And while we have a connection with them, and we have met them, and we know them, and we're hearing the things that they are enduring through their emails and their words, we are not living in the midst of what they're enduring. We're seeing it as a spectator from the outside. But these Christians in Pergamum, they saw exactly what happened to Antipas. They lived with him. They observed what was going on. They knew. They saw. Let me tell you what happened to him. He actually was a physician and he was suspected of secretly propagating Christianity when he was meeting with his patients. So the rest of the medical community accused him of disloyalty to Caesar, and he was found guilty. He was condemned to death by being placed inside of a copper bull and then heated until it was as hot as it could get. I don't know about you. I don't think that sounds like a good way. They saw what happened to Antipas. And yet, they held firm and did not renounce the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I know what you did. 
Way to go. Well done. But there's a few things we need to address. In Revelation 2, 14 and 15, Jesus goes on and says, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. We don't hear Jesus talk about things that he hates very often. But in this he's very clear to say, He hates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. I'm guessing if Jesus hates that doctrine, we probably should hate that doctrine also. So we better know what the doctrine is, right? If we do not know the doctrines in which Jesus hates, we have the ability to fall into those same beliefs. We don't want to be the church at Pergamum where Jesus says to us, I love that you're standing for my name, but there are some doctrines in there that I'm not happy with. So what is the doctrine of Balaam, and what was it that the Nicolaitan Latins believed? Well, Balaam actually occurs a couple of other times in the New Testament. It is something that is is heavily talked about in the Old Testament, but it shows up a couple times in the New Testament. In 2 Peter 2.15, it says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Balaam, part of their doctrine, was to get their gains any way necessary. If it meant that you were going to come out on top, Whatever you needed to do to do it, that was okay. In Jude 1, verse 11, it says, Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Balaam's error is his willingness to accommodate pagan beliefs and anything else that is necessary in order to gain. So we see this idea here that there is compromise within Balaam's doctrine. It is not stand firm on all of the truths of the word of Jesus Christ. It is stand firm, hold to his name, but if you got to do some underhanded things in order to get ahead in this world, go ahead and do them. I don't find that part of Jesus' teaching. That is a false doctrine. That is a false teaching that this church at Pergamum was embracing. Now, to be fair, they live in a society that worships all kinds of false gods. They're immersed in this society. They grew up in this society. In fact, when we take a look at the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, it actually comes out of Acts 6, 
where they have added to the number of deacons. And Nicholas is one of the deacons. But Acts 6.5 says that Nicholas was a proselyte of Antioch. It means he grew up as a pagan, a non-believer. He converted to Judaism. And then he converted to Christianity. So his background is to have lived and embraced and grew up in the pagan teachings. So his teachings with Christianity were tainted by what he grew up with. So the Nicolaitans already have some things in there that might not line up with what Christ calls us to do. Those doctrines teach compromise. Christians are allowed to sort of walk that middle line, one foot in the world, one foot in Christ, keep walking back and forth along that line. What that does is make us indistinguishable from the unbelievers. And God has called us to be set apart, a holy priesthood. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans believes that a little little sin doesn't hurt. Just go back and ask for forgiveness. That whole, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Right? Do what you need to and then ask for forgiveness even though you knew it was wrong to begin with. The Bible says that just a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. The willingness to compromise for the sake of maternal gains is not something that we ever see Christ say to us. To enable sinful behaviors for personal gain or even to participate in sinful behavior for personal gain is of the world. It is not of God. And so when those teachings are happening within the church, we have a problem. Christ hates that. James actually says, he gives a warning to those who are teachers of the Word. Because they will receive a stricter judgment. What is preached from a pulpit has the ability to influence Christians. And if it is not of the Word, if it is not of the Scriptures, if it is compromised in any way, that preacher will receive a stricter judgment because they have led Christians away from the truth of God's Word. So anyone who gets up to teach or preach of the Word of God has to know that they will receive a stricter judgment. That is what happened with Nicholas. He was influenced by his upbringing and he shared that influence with young, impressionable, new believers and they believed him. I remember as a young Christian, I I believed everything the pastor said. There was nothing in me that would believe that a pastor would mislead me, whether intentionally or not. And so... It took me time and growth in the Word to understand that when something is preached, I need to go back to the Scriptures and to determine if it lines up with Scripture and if it lines up with the Spirit that resides within me. Well, 
The people who were following the doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans did not do that. These teachings are not just a problem because they're false. They're also devious. They manipulate. How do you get gain? By manipulating other people. If I need something, but I don't want to actually go and ask Debbie to give it to me, if I just make my need known to her and tell her how much I need that, maybe I can manipulate her into offering to give it to me. That's not of God. That's not a blessing out of God. That's manipulation. There is no point at which God desires manipulation. The Nicolaitans and those who followed Balaam, they were looking for personal gain and fame and glory. They were not looking to glorify God. So even though they did not renounce their faith faith, and they stood firm in the name of Jesus Christ, they had some problems going on in their church. Revelation 2.15 says that some would hold to it. Not just that they heard it and weren't sure what to do with it. They held on to it. They believed it. They incorporated it into their own belief system. That is dangerous. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The scripture is very clear on this. We cannot serve God and money. God can bring us blessing in the form of money, but that is because we are seeking after the things of God and he brings forth the blessing. We can't go after the things of this world and the things of God and think that both are going to mesh. They don't. There is a solid line between the two. We pursue the things of God or we pursue the things of this world. We have truth or we have false teaching. And anything over on this side that is not truth, Jesus hates. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If we are not transforming our mind through the scriptures, through the washing of the word, if we don't know this and putting it into our heart and our mind, then we do not have the ability to test and approve what God's will is. Teachings will be able to come in that are not of God, and they will influence us. Those are false teachings. We are to know truth, righteousness, and goodness. And if we don't study the Word, we won't recognize it when it's not of God. Revelation 2.16, Jesus goes on and says, Repent, 
or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. When Jesus arrives on the scene and fights with a sword, they aren't going to survive. He will come and he will come quickly and he will fight against them with the sword of his mouth. Jesus' warning here is clear. We need to hold a standard against false teachings. And if we don't, he will come in. Revelation 2.17. We've heard this at the end of each of the letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You ever thought, well, what a ridiculous thing. Of course we all have ears. I mean, there may be some who don't, but we have ears. He's not saying if you have a a physical ear. He is saying if you have a spiritual ear, hear with your spiritual ear what the Spirit is saying. This has to be fought in the spiritual realm. And how many of you know that if there is a God who is good and love and pure in the spiritual realm, then there is a darkness and a force that opposes him in the spiritual realm. We cannot open ourselves up to God and not recognize that there is a force operating against him trying to gain our soul. We are foolish if we think that there's only good. John 6:48 says, "Oops, sorry. I'm going back to Revelation 2:17." So we listen with our spiritual ears to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. In this particular exhortation, Jesus says he's going to give us three things. He's going to give us hidden manna to eat. Does that mean that we're going to have to go looking for it and searching? I mean, in the wilderness, they woke up, the manna was there, you went out, you collected it. There was no search. What is this hidden manna? It's the Word of God. And the reason it is hidden is because only those who know Jesus Christ have the ability to understand it. It is not out there for everyone in the world to see. It is out for those who have his spirit and understand that the spirit speaks to us through the word of God. It is hidden only in the sense that we have to know Jesus Christ. John 6:48 Jesus said, "I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and may not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever." The hidden manna is the eternal life that Jesus Christ has provided for us because he came to earth and he sacrificed himself on our behalf. 
The white stone, there's a lot of different theories about what that white stone may mean. But the most popular or the most, um, the one that has the most evidence behind it actually has to do with the Roman custom of awarding white stones to the victor. When you received a white stone, it was the same as receiving a ticket into the highest banquet. You were the winner. You were the overcomer. You now get to sit in the highest place. How many of you know there is a banquet being prepared for the bridegroom and his bride? The bride is his church. Each one of us have the right to gain the white stone that gets us into the banquet with the bridegroom. And there is a name written on it that is known only to who the name is given. It's not public. God does not sing our praises out in public. God honors our actions because of the intentions of our heart. This is between me and God. It is between you and God. Whether or not we are standing firm against the false teachings of this world or we are going back to the Scriptures to know the truth of who Jesus Christ is, that is between us and God. It has to be done on a personal level. We can't come to church each Sunday and hope that the pastor tells us, hey, these are false doctrines, these are good, you can trust me, go ahead. God is saying the name that is written on that stone will be because of my personal knowledge and relationship with you and you knowing my word. That's how we get the stone. It's how we get into the banquet. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. If we do not have the sword in our hand, we cannot correctly handle the word of truth. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When we spend that time in God's Word, we have the ability to discern between the soul and the spirit. What does the flesh want and what does the spirit of God want? What is false teaching and what is truth? What is coming out of pure intention and what is coming out of manipulation? That comes from knowing the word of God. How many of us truly understand that the Word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword? I want to know the spiritual things of God. And I want to leave the rest of this world off on the side. The only way I can do that 
is to know the Word of God. It is the only thing sharp enough to pierce the division of the soul and the spirit. This is not a sword of destruction. This is a sword that separates the truth and the false teachings and lets us know God in His fullness and in truth. We have to use the Word of God. It's like priming a pump. When I spend time in the Word of God, I find that I am quoting scriptures out to people who talk to me. They're scriptures I don't even think I've ever read before. But I don't have to know them because I am spending time in with the Spirit of God, with the Word of God. Jesus knows every every single word written in that book because He is the Word. If I'm spending time with His Spirit, He flows out of me. He can say whatever Scripture He wants because He knows them. I don't have to know everyone. But I will tell you that when I start really working and memorizing Scripture, more Scripture comes out of me. And it is easier to memorize Scripture. The more I memorize, the more it comes out of me and the more I can memorize. We must take the sword out of the stone. We need to not see ourselves as a poor, young orphan who has nothing in this world. We need to see ourselves sitting on the throne of the greatest kingdom of all time as heirs with Christ because that is what He has done for us. It is in nothing that we have done. It is in what He has done and accomplished for us. But He allows us to wield the sword of the Spirit and to gain our access to the greatest banquet and sit on the throne with Him in the kingdom of God. We get to sit in the presence and glorify the Lord. And He says, Those of you who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying. So I want to leave you with Ephesians 6, the armor of God. And I want you to just listen to this and let it resonate in your spirit. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That's the purpose of the armor. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is good And there is evil. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and many of you know we are walking in days of evil, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Be praying that the Lord's people will stand firm and will distinguish truth from false teaching. 